Um, you're going to start with that one? Mm -hmm. Can you make it uh, possessive? Yes, Third sir. Person? Absolutely. Outstanding. Um, Y'all don't mind if I sit, do you? <laughs> May it be your will, Lord our, Lord, my, Lord our God, that a mishap not come about through us. And may we not stumble in a matter of law and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us. And may we not say something regarding which is Tameh, that it is Tahor. And not regarding something which is Tahor, that it is Tameh. And, and may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of law and we rejoice over them. For the Lord grants wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Unveil our eyes that we may perceive wondrous wonders from your Torah. Amen. Amen. Greet on the tape wood. Juliana. Uh, Lori. Juliana. Zadi. Welcome, Juliana. Are, is she listening to a Zadi class? Is okay, is that, is that allowed? I, uh, I told her it was possible only because she was a... Uh, that's not even. Johnny Cat, right? And Johnny's in the line. Johnny, Steve, everyone, welcome. I broke it. Uh, we're going to look at First John. This is an introduction. Those of you who have never done uh, a study with me before. Uh, may not know this, but um, I teach inductively, which means it takes participation. Uh, I have a tendency to lecture, though, so you have to interrupt. Uh, when I say inductively, I mean that we kind of expect to already have at least some information before we begin to discuss. So today, I'm going to lecture, with your participation a little bit, hopefully, um, about First John, but we're not going to spend much time in First John because we haven't done any study yet. So, um, in the future, at a future date, when we do Lesson 1, we'll, we'll begin that by actually doing homework. So today, there was no homework for you, so we're going to actually just do an introduction. Yeah, yay! We're going to do an introduction to First John. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, um, about the book, some of the things that I like about the book, um, who has had an opportunity to study First John inductively in the past? Joshua. Okay. Thank you, Joe. Yeah. I, Joseph. I actually, I, I, it, the first precept course that I ever took, twenty, wow, thirty years ago, was uh, I know thirty years ago was actually First John. Uh, it was, uh, it was, it was. I was hooked. Um, it, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed the book, but from a Hebraic perspective, it seems like people have a tendency want to avoid it. I don't know why. Uh, simply as they often avoid many of the apostolic uh, scriptures, uh, with the exception of the Gospels. And I hope that this study will reveal that that is uh, very uh, a very short-sighted perspective that that it has enormous things to teach us and that it is a thoroughly Jewish book. Start, start a little bit with the uh, authorship, author and date. Uh, the Gospel of 1 John has a lot of similarities in language, uh, the words that are used, the Greek construction to the Gospel of John, which means that its author was most likely, uh, was most likely uh, Yochanan ben Zavdai, John, the beloved uh, disciple. Uh, there's other 
there's other historical reference that make him the author as well. In the second century, uh, his disciples said that he wrote this book. He, um, he wrote it. He wrote it actually um, uh, fairly late in the uh, in the in the uh, in the history. Written the Gospel of John was probably written around ninety of the Common Era, and the uh, um, and Revelation about ninety five, and this would have been the. Uh, the third to the last book written in the Apostolic Scriptures. So uh, around the year 100 of the Common Era. John's a very old guy when he writes this. So the uh, Gospel of John was written as late as 90? Yes. Mm-hmm. And this would be after that? That's right. Yeah. So around 100, 2nd John and 3rd John follow shortly thereafter at the end of his life. Now, to put that in perspective, um, Justin Martyr, the great anti-Semite of the 2nd century, uh, is 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 uh, coming on the scene just just a score of years later, so this is uh, there's there's a whole lot of falling away very quickly from the time of John. Uh, did anybody know what city John would have most likely penned this, along with his with his other uh, books that he that he uh, wrote? Uh, that's you know that's a common common thought because John or the Revelation speaks about he was on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, but actually, he didn't die on Patmos. He was released for Patmos. Um, anybody, any other guess? Ephesus, yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, actually, he lived out the, the remainder of his life in Ephesus, uh, um, you know, dozen or so years in Ephesus, uh, and he was there uh, prior to that as well. Uh, He's the last surviving He is the last surviving of the disciples. He was very young in the Gospels. He was one of the youngest, or if not the youngest in the Gospels. Yes. Like 20s? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Cases. Yeah. Well, this just bears that out. Yeah, Yeshua was young, 30. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, y'all, I had to say that. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I'm young at heart. I'm, I'm younger than 30 at heart, so. in my mind. Um, one of the things about the, the book that is a little bit, maybe a little bit discouraging for someone from my perspective is that it is oftentimes used as a as a because it is apparently written as an anti-gnostic work gnosticism is based on greek philosophy uh is very pagan uh, however it is it is firmly embedded in 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 early christianity uh, gnosticism whether it's being rejected or not Gnostic thinking is always there. So this book is seen as an anti-Gnostic work. And yet it uses what seem to be kind of Gnostic themes even. So it, it makes you wonder, it's like, was John so, so secure in his theology that he could actually use those same themes in a positive way? If you and I were opposing something, we'd be very careful not to even have the appearance. We wouldn't even use the language of our opponents, would we? John does not seem to be afraid of using the language of the error. And the reason why is because the language that he's using is not first or second century language. This is the mistake of most commentators when they look at this book. They see it in terms of Greek philosophy. Even though John is arguing against Greek philosophy. They see it in terms of Greek philosophy, in the language of Greek philosophy, and because of that, they encouch everything in those ideas, even those are the very ideas that John was arguing against. Even good commentators that see John as writing against Gnosticism still tend to 
give credence to some vestiges of Gnosticism as if John were somehow trying to pick out, pick the meat and leave the bones, right? The Gnosticism being sort of like a hyper-mystical knowledge is everything. Gnosticism is that, and it's also, the best way for us to see, think about how John is arguing against Gnosticism is under, under some key words we're going to look at. One is knowledge, but also in the idea that the physical and the spiritual are so separate, so, so opposites that they could never be one and the same. Never even close. It's arguments of was, was Messiah man or was he spirit? Right? Those are Gnostic questions. John argues against those in this book, as we're going to see. But, and pardon me? Docetism is the other one. Gnosticism and docetism are, actually docetism is an earliest form of, of Gnosticism. So we see that the, these, these concepts are, 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 uh, are the things that he's arguing against. And yet, the, most of the commentators take those very same things and then use those to frame the argument. What we're going to do is different, totally different. We're going to see that these very mystic themes found in the book of 1 John actually have their origin in the Torah and in the prophets, not in Greek philosophy. We'll talk about them here in a second. But one of the things that is a little bit disturbing is how practical the book is. It's very practical. When I say disturbing, it's disturbing to people when they read it in a practical way. For me, anytime someone ever said to me when I was in the church, someone ever said to me, you know, enough theology, give me something practical. To me, that was a cop-out. It meant, don't give me anything hard to understand. I just want nice little platitudes like, take care of the poor. By the way, that is the essence of religion. It is the essence of practical. The problem is the people that were saying that weren't taking care of the poor. What they really meant was, give me something I can talk about very nicely in Sunday school that, that talks about how I would treat my lawyer, excuse me, or my, doc, or my doctor, or my neighbor when he's mowing the lawn or something like that. That's the practical that they were talking about. Practical religion means that every single thing that we think, we will put into action. That we'll be constantly wondering, what do I need to do about this? Practical religion doesn't say, what do I believe? It says, watch what I do. John writes a very practical book. The Gospel of John is a very practical book, but both of them are extremely mystical. You may not think of them that way, but they are. Very mystical. The reason why you may not think of 1 John or the Gospel of John as mystical is because you've been exposed to them in church language. You've come to be, you become very familiar with it. It doesn't seem mystical to you, but it is. Here's some examples. I think this thing keeps going to sleep. These idioms are in Christianity constantly being used, so we don't think, them, we don't think of them as mystical. Uh, but they draw from the prophets, and you see these in the prophets as well. Here, let me just read a couple of verses to you, and you think about the words that I'm using. This is from 1 John 1, 5. This is the message which we heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness. Is God light? What, what does he mean? Is God's light? 
So is he a wave or a or is he a or is he a, or is he a particle? Right? God's light? Does he mean that literally? Or is he speaking idiomatically? God is light. And in no dark in him's no darkness. Now, you're exposed to that language. It seems very common to you. Well, God's light. In him is no darkness. I walk in the light. We should all walk in the light. We wouldn't want Evil loves darkness, right? And we can all think of very practical exp- expressions of that. Oh, you don't want to walk in the middle of a, of a, of a street that doesn't have s- uh, street lamps. You know, you might get mugged or whatever. But the point is, those are, those are metaphor. That's a mystical idea. God is light? What's that mean? By the way, this is the language of the prophets. This is the language of the Torah. This is not Greek philosophy that says God's light. If it were Greek philosophy that says God's light, then we have a completely different perspective then it's all a sham. Because that's what Plato said. The light is a sham. It's designed to cast shadows, to fake us out. That's not what John's saying when he says God's light. So I can't use Greek philosophy to understand what this means. Continuing. That which was, this is actually, this is earlier, in chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we saw and our hands touched concerning the word of life and the life was revealed and we have seen and testified and declare to you that life, eter- the eternal life, which was from the Father, was revealed to us. Eternal life. Well, how, is reve- how is eternal life revealed to us in Messiah? It, it, notice, he uses physical things to describe a mystical concept. And what's the mystical concept? Now, you may not think eternal life is a mystical concept, but he just said that eternal life is expressed in a person. How? how? Well, explain that to me. Okay, he, he has eternal life, but that, what does that to me, mean to me? He has eternal life. I mean, it may not sound... I want you to stop thinking church language and start wondering, what does that mean? That he is eternal life? That's what he said in John chapter 17. When he talked about, when he talked about in his prayer to the Father, he says that they may know you, and the one who you are, who, who, and this is who you sent, and this is eternal life that they may know you. Knowing God is eternal life, really? Is that literal? If it is, then okay, well there you go. Wow, that was quick. Eternal went right, right past me, right? How's that eternal? Is that the way we scribe eternal life? That's not the way I heard eternal life. When I was in Sunday school, they said eternal life means that as long as you were there, it just hadn't even, in compared to the expanse, it hadn't even begun. When we've been there 10,000 years, right? That's eternal life. No, that's everlasting life. That may be another concept. What's eternal life? You have, have you asked that question? Think about it. I'm going to continue reading. This is chapter 2, verse 7. Brothers, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. An old commandment. What's an old commandment? I write no new commandment to you. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. The word which you heard? What's the word that they heard? Shema, Israel. Again, I write to you a new... A, again, I write a new commandment to you. Ah, finally. Something new. Which is true in him and in you, because darkness is passing away. Darkness is passing away. What's darkness? He's speaking idiomatically, but what is it? Or is it really darkness? 
He who says, and excuse me, is passing away, and true light already shines. He who, he who says he is the light and hates his brother, is in the light and hates his brother, is in the darkness and even until now. He who thinks he's in the light and hates his brother is in the darkness. What kind of darkness? What, what, what is that picture? He who loves his brother remains in the light. Light's a good thing, apparently. And there is no occasion for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, if you have any exposure to Greek philosophy, you immediately read this and you go, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about. Except you would be completely wrong. And what we've done in the church is we've taken that concept of being completely wrong and go, let's see if we can't work it a little bit. And we kind of get it turned maybe about 15 degrees off center. So it can seem correct. But it's still saying the same thing as Greek philosophy. Light and darkness. Yin and yang. You know, positive and negative. There's two forces. There's the dark side of the force and the good side of the force. Luke. That is not what John is talking about. He is using the language of the Torah. He's using the language of the prophets to convey something to us. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that those commentators are completely wrong. I'm just saying they're going about it incorrectly. Some of their conclusions are absolutely correct. The problem is they're using Greek philosophy to support something that Greek philosophy can't support, but that the Torah does support. It is a very practical book. It's also controversial. Who has a King James Bible? Or even a New King James? Anything based on Textus Receptus. Uh, it has this thing in it called uh, the Textus Receptus of John chapter 5, verse 7 through 8. Is a, has a Trinitarian formula. Now, you may not find that controversial. That's fine. However, it is controversial. Who has one? Yeah. Very good. I do as well. It's a great translation, as long as you remember it is a not a it is not anything other than a translation. Yeah. It is not the word of God. Kama Yohanim actually is this this these verses. And the reason why it's controversial is not because of its Trinitarian formula, although that should be controversial maybe. The reason it's controversial is it's only found in one document. One manuscript ever. Every other manuscript, every single Greek manuscript, other than Textus Receptus, which is complete, does not have these verses. Or it has these verses differently. That's what the rabbi was uh, referring to. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Now, whether you like Trinitarian doctrine or not, the problem is that in the 2nd and the 3rd century, this was not the issue. Trinitarianism did not rise to the level of debate within Christianity until the 5th century. Not Constantine. Constantine, the argument at Nicaea, the Council of Nicaea, 325, the Common Era, was not about Trinitarianism. You've been told that maybe, but it's not true. It was about something else. A dualism. Not Trinitarianism. A dualism. The Holy Spirit was not part of the formula. The Holy Spirit does not come part of the formula for a hundred more years after Nicaea. So when we read this, we go, wait a minute. If 
you read the verses here, let me read them. Uh, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one. And And there are three that bear witness on the earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree as one. 1 John 5, 7 through 8. That's in the New King James. Somebody have it in a New American Standard. Can you read it for us? That's good. ESV is excellent. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. That's it. Somebody read that and goes, that's very cool. I mean, is that Trinitarian or what? Let's just, look, we know what it means. Let's just go ahead and put it down. Right? Okay, now, again, the controversy is not Trinitarianism. The controversy is that there's only one text that has it. Rest assured, we're not even going there. Because we use a text that doesn't even have it. Fortunately for us, because um, maybe some people would dis- be disappointed with a study that would go into Trinitarianism. So. I don't know. Maybe not. I have a Hebrew names version. It's going to be, uh, by the way, I didn't tell you this. Uh, online, uh, I have a workbook, up, the, up PDF, that uh, I will uh, forward to you all. And uh, it has... Um, the Hebrew names version actually printed in the back. Let me encourage you to actually use what's printed as opposed to your own version. And the reason why is because I've done something for you in this version. <laughs> I've altered it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it doesn't say what you want, you might as well make it say what you want. No, 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 no. no, no. Uh, what I've done is I've formatted it. I've, I've presented it in two ways. First John Front to back, first verse to the end, last verse. And then I present it in Hebrew names version, which is based on the new Amer- is, is based on the American Standard uh, Version, which is about, ni- I think, 1911, 1901. It's actually a very good translation. The, uh, um, but what I've done is, in this, I've done it again, I've put it by topic. I've reordered the book by topic. And then I've, I've made the formatting so that you can easily identify plural verbs and pronouns as well as t- uh, present tense. It's very important when you read this book in English. Ex- actually, I should say this. You cannot read this book in English without that background and understand it. Everybody, Everything you've ever read about First John may be wrong if it's based upon the English. Because it's twisted. Often twisted. <clears throat> but before we get into that, <clears throat> let me talk about the things that, <clears throat> that it does do with regard to continuity of the Torah. <clears throat> how, does it, how, is, how does it provide continuity of the Torah? When you lay this book, again, if you take Greek philosophy as your starting point, and then you study First John, you're going to come up with a, with a different, you may come up with some, not completely, but some similar uh, truths. However, you're going to come up with it by going a convoluted route. Whereas if you lay it against the Torah, and the prophets. The Torah, and specifically regard to the commandments that John's going to speak of, and the prophets in regard to the language and the idioms that are being used, the mystical nature. By the way, maybe you don't like the word mystical. Let me encourage you not to be afraid of the word mystical. Here's what I mean by mystical. You pick up the book of the Revelation. By the way, it's not, a re- it's not Revelations. It's the Revelation. You pick up the book of Revelation, and you read it, and tell me, that that's not some weird stuff. <clears throat> that, that is mystical. Okay? Why did he write like that? Was it all code? I do not believe that. 
I do not believe that John goes, you know something, I know what this means, but I'm going to change it so it's like hidden. Only the inside people get it. Remember, this is a guy that hates doceticism. He hates Gnosticism. He's not going to play their game. Putting things in code, only the inside gets. This is the revelation he received. I don't believe he understood it. The word itself means to reveal. That's right. Not to hide it. No. Just the opposite. So, what he's reading, what he's seeing, what he's writing about in that book is very mystical. You pick up the Gospel of John, start at the beginning and read all the way through. Actually, just start the first chapter. This is the first 14 verses. That's some mystical stuff. Okay. Mysticism not in the sense of hocus pocus, but mysticism in the sense that God is so far beyond us and above us, unknowable by us, except that he reveals himself. And that sometimes he reveals himself in hidden things for a reason. Not to confuse, not to have an elect that are the upper echelon and then the commoners down below, but rather so that he can, he can confound the wise of this world. So this book is a book of to confound the wise of this world, who pick it up and read it as if it's Plato. But when you lay this book against, not against the first century or second century, but against the Torah and the prophets, it becomes very clear it's a continuity. That it's very, very consistent. That it's very, very Jewish, as first John as as the Gospel of John is. It's been said that Rabbinic sources say that the Gospel of John is the most anti-Semitic book written. Because it founded, founded an anti-Semitic religion. It's constant talk about the Jews, the Jews, the Jews. We could, we could argue from English, from an English, your English Bible, maybe that's true. I do not believe that at all. If you read the book, Knowing the Festivals knowing that John writes from the perspective of the festivals, he can't possibly be criticizing the Jews. He uses the word the Jews in English in a totally different way in Greek, referring to the Judeans, not the Jews. Similarly, this book is thoroughly Jewish when you understand the Jewish language that's being used within it. There's, excuse me, That's right. Um, the Gospel of John pulls a lot of its analogies, Deuteronomy, imagery, mm-hmm. teachings from the Torah, yep. the books of Moses. Very good. Um, one of the things also is the, the focus on practical righteousness. This really confounds people. It's why they try and make the, the book uh, more Greek than it is. Is because the, the focus on practical righteousness is disconcerting. <laughs> why? Why is that disconcerting? Well, you know, I, actually, you know, I, I don't think that people who go to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday for supper, and then Wednesday Bible study, and then also to get together some other time during the week for prayer, go on mission trips, are opposed to doing things. They're opposed to a specific kind of doing things. They believe that their righteousness is imputed to them by the work of Messiah. We, we couldn't argue with that. I mean, Judaism believes that the righteousness of a, of a Rebbe, a great 
tzaddik is imputed to his disciples. No problem. We get that. But is that what righteousness is? You call yourself tzaddikim. Is it because you've just been stuck with a stamp on your forehead said you're righteous? Then why come unto me? Exactly. Why bother? Look, it's been done for me. You know, Christianity is, is, is accused of that all the time, incorrectly. Because they're honest people that try desperately to please God by what they do. But they're embarrassed of it. They will never admit it with their mouth. <laughs> oh, I know. Uh, somehow I stumble through. and Okay, so if anything comes good of my life, that's fine. You know, it's like, no, no. no. Like, I'm not saying we should brag. Don't misunderstand. I'm just The point is, let's call it what it is. When you give something to a poor person, that is not charity. That is righteousness. When you care for a widow, that is righteousness. When you visit the sick, it is righteousness. It is the essence of righteousness. It's not just because it's been stamped on our forehead. I think that with First John, what scares people so much is not so much that it just asks for practical actions of righteousness, but it expects them. I think that's the scary thing, is oftentimes with scripture or even with sermons or whatever else, it's very easy to say, well, ideally, you should do this. But First John says, either you do this or you don't. And it creates a very clear line. That fine, that fine line, that black and white. In addition, it's not only do this or don't do this, but it's one of those books that is saying do this Jewish thing. Which once you look at it, it's asking you to do the, the, you know, the Old Testament things. When that's exactly what it's saying, because from that perspective, what's old? L- Luther said the book of James wasn't worth straw. Take it out. Tear it up. Yep. Hated it. Unfortunately, or fortunately I should say, he didn't know this book was saying exactly the same thing. But because it's been couched in Greek philosophy, understood through the prism of Platoism, it's been confused. We're going to strip away the Platoism and see it for what it says. What John says in 1 John is he points back to the Torah and the prophets. He says the only valid definition of righteousness is found there. I know the screen keeps going to sleep on my phone is what it is. Um, we're going to do this thematically like I told you. There's a, there's a lot of key words in this book. The key words are the words that we're going to focus on and that's where I've arranged the book thematically using the key words and I've arranged the book so you can read it thematically. You know, I, I didn't invent this but after I did it once I was like, wow, man. Because re- I've read the book many times and I read it many, many times just trying to get ready for the study and when I rearrange it I go, Man, I, as before I felt like I was jumping around. Yeah. I felt like after I rearranged it thematically, I was, I was getting whole thoughts. It's not to mis- don't misunderstand, this isn't a better way to have it written. This is a, just a better way to study it. Okay. Um, but here, here's the themes. The purpose for writing. Actually, these are the lessons. We'll start with lesson one. The purpose for writing. Why do you write? The reason, other reason, it's very practical. He tells us why he wrote it. Wrote it. Think about any other book. Tell me, how, why did they write it? Okay, Luke, we know he wrote it because he wanted to give an orderly account. But what other reason? Can you, oh, Revelation. Okay, we know Revelation was written. And John has a tendency to do this. Yeah, yeah. John has a tendency to do this. Tell us why he wrote it. 
Luke did as well. Matthew doesn't. We have to figure it out. Acts, yeah, well, Luke, Luke told us, or whoever he was told us how. Um, tell me, you know, why do we have the book of Genesis? Uh, we can guess. Pretty, pretty good guess. You start with the Creator. That's a place to start, right? But God doesn't tell us that. Yeah. This book's really practical. It tells you right up front. Why, why, you may be surprised. You may be surprised why he wrote it. Uh, righteousness and sin. Actually, we'll part, break this apart in two, less, two lessons. Righteousness and sin. Light, life, love, know, and overcome. That light, life, love, and know. Seems like you may know those words. Those are mystical. Those are mystical thoughts. What is love? That's not romance. That's something else. What's love? Love is obedience? How's that love? John, in the, in the, in the gospel, John 14 and 15, he makes this big connection between love and obedience. That is not the way we normally discuss love. It's a love story. No, no, if it's a love story, what, was it, did it, what, it involve spanking? I mean, what was that, you know? You know? I mean, did it involve, you know, severe discipline? <laughs> it's a love story. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep, there you go. Different, different reasons that people think, though, isn't it? All right, got to move on here. Verb tense and number. One of the reasons why I rearranged this book and then formatted it the way I did was because it is so difficult to understand, at least the way that it was meant to be understood, without understanding the tense and the number of the verbs and the pronouns. The verb tense is so important, and I'm going to show you why here in a moment. But also the pronouns, plural versus singular. If I say y'all, y'all know what? I'm talking to one of you or all of you? If I say you, you have to understand by context whether I mean all of you or one of you. Or maybe the way I'm looking at one guy, you. No, no, you, you, you. Not you, you. <laughs> right? So it's Italian, you have to talk to people. Yeah, 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 exactly, yeah. And we don't have the benefit of having this wonderful Jew, who also, I'm sure, spoke with his hands, John, to do this for us. So uh, in the Hebrew names version, what I've done is I've given you formatting that shows you the singular and the plural, pronouns and verbs. Greek construction has the verbs carry the, the, the pluralness or singularity as well, other than, like other languages. English doesn't do that, but excuse me. Hmm? Did you find this? I'm going to show you right there now. The perfect, exit, the perfect example of bias. And here's the problem. This is the reason why I'm doing this. The, there's bias in English. It's okay. We all have bias. Well, it's not okay because we should be very careful not to have bias in Scripture as we're a translator. But it's understandable. So I'm not going to criticize the translators other than they couldn't see other than past their, their own theology that was blocking their vision. An example is in Hebrews chapter 9. The translators manipulated the Greek, or rather the English, to say something completely different than the Greek says in Hebrews chapter 9. An example, uh, no matter when the, he when, the, when the Hebrew was written, Hebrews could have been written before the temple was destroyed or after the temple was destroyed. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter when it was written, either way they manipulated with the text to make it say something it didn't. Because it was destroyed before, the, if, if Hebrews was written before the temple was destroyed, it was certainly written after Yeshua's resurrection. Agreed? Agreed. Okay. It was written after the temple was destroyed. That's also after Yeshua's resurrection. Sure. 
So it doesn't matter when it was written, it's still a problem that they tried to fix in English. Because the word sacrifices and anything containing the temple, they switched the verbs. Instead of making the present tense, which indicated that the temple was operable and all of the sacrifices and offerings were efficacious, they switch it to make it that it's not. It's in the past. The old way. Here's the new way. The old way was offerings. The new way is Yeshua's offering. The Greek doesn't say that at all. It makes them concurrent. How's that work? That doesn't fit with Christian theology. At least no theology I was ever taught. Here it is. This is the new King James. And I've highlighted the words that they've changed. Then indeed, even the first... Actually, they've changed more than these. Excuse me, I won't go into it, but there's a whole lot wrong in this translation. (laughs) Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in earth and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant above it and were the cherubim of glory overshadowing. Overshadowing is a, is in, is, is a gerund there, it's, but in this case it's reflecting a past tense, not a present tense. The mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been pr- thus prepared, the priests always went, past tense, into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went, past tense, alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered, past tense, for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. That seems totally consistent with Christian theology. But this version doesn't, because I've changed it to actual Greek tense. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, that is past tense, isn't it? Doesn't matter when. But in, which, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which has, present tense, the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant. I'm sorry, in the first century, was there an Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle? Prove it to me. And the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which the golden pot that has the manna. Present tense. Listen, think about that theologic for a moment. That's a powerful statement. The writer of the book of Hebrews is telling us that the tabernacle has. What tabernacle? Where? The tabernacle. Ha- Was a tabernacle standing in the first century? This is a temple. He says the tabernacle has the, man- the pot with the man in it. Has it? Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of covenant and above it are the, the cherubim of glory is overshadowing. It's there now. Currently overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared the priests always go, present tense. Actually it's not just go as in present tense like you read there. But it's present tense in Greek means they keep on going. They have in the past and they continue to go in. Go into the first part of the tabernacle, perform the services. But into the second part of the high priest alone, once a year, not without blood, which he offers. Not, not just offers like, well, yeah, well, he offers it. No, no. Continues to offer. If you follow this up with the Hebrews chapter 10, where it talks about Yom Kippur, 
and it being a lesser of whatever Yeshua did, that doesn't seem to fit, does it? Not necessarily in the theology that you've been taught, the Hebrews 9 and 10 are teaching. For himself and for the people's sin committed anywhere. What's the conclusion? The conclusion is that they cannot, in good faith, translate the Greek as it's written into English. Because it cannot survive, or their theology cannot survive the questions that come from it. I doubt that you've ever heard a sermon in a church that had any connection to the present tense verbs found in Hebrews chapter 8, 9, and 10. It's not just that chapter, by the way. I did a study of the entire book, compared it in King James, compared it to the English versus the Hebrew. Every single verb. It is embarrassing how oftentimes the translator switched the verbs from present tense to past. But here's a bias as well. And this again, the translators, it's understandable why they do it. They're not trying to deceive people. They're just trying to say, this doesn't make any sense. They do the same thing with number here. And here it's maybe even more benign because, because well, their intentions are benign because they don't, they don't anticipate people asking the question, is it talking to all of us or just some of us? After all, Messiah's work for us is personal, right? Is it? I don't know if you've asked that question before. Is it personal? Or is it corporate? Or is it not both? If Christianity were to choose between the two, which would they choose? Personal. Why? You need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Right? I'm not disputing that. But is that what most of the passengers are speaking about? You may be surprised in 1 John. Some very familiar passages that say something maybe different or a little different than you thought. For instance, I'll give you an example. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, I just gave you the plural. Why did you read it singular? All your life. You need to confess your sin, right? Is that what it says? No. It says we. Is he talking about we is inclusive? That's an English that's an English way of speaking. That's not a Greek or Hebrew way of thinking. He wouldn't say we as a means of of diminishing the harshness, which is what we do, isn't it? When we want to speak in a way that's less harsh, we say we. We include ourselves in the group instead of you, <laughs> you, you, you. Right? John has no, no qualms at saying you. Singular. Why does he say we? Well, if you look at all the verses surrounding it, I don't want to give too much away, but if you look at all the verses surrounding it, it's corporate. Think about that for a second. So the one guy going in talking to the priest, forgive me, Father, for I've sinned. When was your last confession? <laughs> it's totally bogus. It's more, it's more bogus than we think. We have a crowd of people. Exactly. Right. And not just a priest, but like talking to each other. Okay, well, here's my guy. Like, Hello, my name's Rick, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> That's right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is really important you get the key to these verses, singular or plural, to understand how it relates to my 
personal responsibility for righteousness and against sin. And my corporate responsibility, because he doesn't stay singular or plural all the way through, he switches. He, can, he tells us. Can you think of another example from the Torah? Anybody? The Shema. What's the, what's do, what's the first paragraph of the Shema? By the way, those rabbis are so smart. They gave us two paragraphs to say the same thing. What were they... You know, what, were they trying to be redundant? Say it twice, it really means it. What did they say? In Hebrew, everybody knows what they're saying. English, it's very hard to see what they're saying. The first paragraph is singular. First personal. First paragraph's personal. It's like, you. But then in the second paragraph, it's plural. Y'all. We corporately fasten mezuzah, mezuzot upon our doorposts. We corporately wrap to Phil and John. One, one little note, just to comment, I guess, but we down in the South, we say y'all. Yeah. In Jersey, we say you. Use, that's right. I think it's very, I think it's very helpful to have an English, an English way of speaking that actually gives the plural. By the way, our, our, our more ancient English speakers had it as well. We just lost it in the modern. You know, these and thous are much easier to understand if you understand singular and plural. It's not a formal way of speaking. You is, if I'm being informal, and thee is... I always laughed about that. My, my dad brought that up when, when, he was, when he was in a church as well. It's like, you know, why do, you, why do you always have to pray? They, he's criticized for not praying in these and thous. It's like, well, well no. I mean, that's, you know, that's not necessarily... In other words, thee is not a formal way of speaking. It's, it's simply a, a singular. Singular. <laughs> Versus a plural. <laughs> Excuse me. is the lack of corporateness in the church. The visible church, well, it, it talks of a good mm-hmm. of, of, of doing the whole church thing. Yep. Corporately, you're not concerned. From a leadership perspective, as well as the individuals. Because the individuals are ready to get up, and get, you know, if I don't like what you're doing, and the programs aren't what I'm looking for. I'm going to find somewhere else. The church, right. It's pretty easy. Yeah. Whereas... Uh, I think you've tried to demonstrate to us time and time again that the unity of the body is so important. Mm-hmm. And even the pilgrimage feasts, you know, we're, we are all going up to Jerusalem. All of Israel went up. That's right. A, a unity type thing. And I just, being raised in the visible church, I just don't think we get it. It takes, it takes an immersion in it does. Walk, it does. To, to, to come to that understanding that he needs to be with me. Absolutely. And him. And him on a regular basis. Because we're together. However, and this is what I want to caution you as you begin the study, don't think that the corporate nature is simply a something that those in the visible church call fellowship. Mm. It's not about fellowship. It is warm. By the way, I don't like crowds. I love y'all, but I don't like crowds. Uh, airports, I hate them. Um, so anytime, so it takes real discipline on my part to be thinking unity about anything. I mean, I'm fine by myself. Cargo. I know I should be car. I was a cargo pilot. My wife maybe quit. Um, but the point is, the point is that that it, it takes work for me to be thinking corporate. It really does. It's not something that I naturally want to do. 
But what we need to understand is, as much as I enjoy your fellowship, it's not about fellowship. That's kind of like the icing on the cake. It's kind of what makes it all palatable. God gives it as a gift. God did not give koinonia, what's mistranslated as fellowship, so that we can all feel good about being together. Because being together is not always about feeling good. It's about holiness. It is. And when we start thinking fellowship as we have something in common, like we get along, as opposed to we have something in common, we have the same king, that's the danger. And then what people do is, just as Joseph says, what are they going to do? Well, I don't feel like I connect anymore. I guess I need to find some place that I connect. Uh, can you imagine, Let me, our, our good friend the rabbi, can you imagine half of his congregation going, you know, I just don't feel like I connect. I'm going somewhere else. I, that's it. Any hope of ever having a minion just flew out the door. Right? You know, we are too few to have such a luxury that people could leave because they don't feel like they fit. We need to dispel the idea that we need to feel like we fit. Unity is about having a purpose in following a single king. That is unity. And when he speaks corporately, he's speaking about that. Unity there too is um, more than just physical unity. It's more than just a verbal unity. But there's a spiritual interplay as well. I mean, it's like in the idea of, I mean, the rabbis understood this very well as far as the significance of the people of Israel being united in their purpose, in their obedience. I mean, it's like this idea behind the lulav. You have the different representations of the right. parts of Israel. That's right. Very righteous. good. And the, even the righteous need the wicked, even, because together they're cumulatively better than singular. So the, the unity is so important that even the righteous by themselves are not as good is that they're joined with the wicked in service to God. It, it, and it, it, to, be, to be clear, when we speak of the wicked there, we're speaking of wicked covenant members. Yeah, I mean, they're not talking about kings, right. but I mean, as far as, like, in, in essence, um, the strong... Does that work? Wicked the, covenant members? I, I mean, I guess I'm trying to say is the strong in the community, like Paul says, need the weak in the community. They do. Absolutely. And it's not just because they learn from each other, but because on a spiritual, mystical, here we go again, plane, they work together in service to God. One of the things... Excuse me, go ahead. I was going to say, the way the master put it, you're great in the kingdom. Or you're least in the kingdom, depending on how you keep his commandments. That's right. But you're still in the kingdom. And we need everybody in the kingdom. Absolutely. That's good. That's a great point. Excellent point. I shouldn't have said wicked. I should say least, the least righteous. <laughs> uh, here's, I'm going to give you a taste of it before we, get, before we close. Uh, we have just a few more minutes. Just a taste of this, because I want you to understand the importance of, of how misreading this book can confuse people. Here's the verse, 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. Whoever remains in him doesn't sin. Whoever sins hasn't seen him, neither knows him. Now, our good friends, the Arminians, <laughs> Finney loved to preach this one. He'd stand up and he'd, uh, in his revivals and he'd get people just crawling to get to the front. Save me, because I sinned today. And they'd be back the next day because they sinned again. And our good friends, the Armenians, constantly hold this over their own heads, that if I don't keep on staying righteous, I need to get saved again. Now, there are variations, understandable. 
But a misreading of this verse is a clear example of why. It doesn't say, if I ever sin, I'm not saved. That's not what it says. First of all, it's a total misunderstanding of the word saved anyway. But regardless, that's not what he's talking about. He's saying, you never knew him if you continue in sin. Wow. Now that does mean something different than if you, if you sin. That's what it says. Take out the, my highlights there. Whoever remains in him doesn't sin. I'm sorry, he's contradicting himself because in the chapter before he says, he says, no one can say, I don't sin. Yeah, so I was like, okay, you're confusing me here. Well, only in English. Because in Greek it's very clear. More importantly, the Hebrew mind that wrote the Greek, it's really clear. <laughs> it's really clear. It's a lifestyle. Well, how do I know that? That's the Torah. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look, you're going to live this life and everybody's going to say, whoa, what kind of God do you worship? That you have such good laws. And the Torah provides for failure. What I do when I do do something wrong, it's like, well, okay, I did something wrong. What's the answer to sin? What's the answer to sin? It's repentance. By the way, the wrong answer would be a sacrifice. Because to offer a sacrifice requires a repentant heart. You cannot receive forgiveness with a sacrifice. Unless your heart's repentant. Did the rabbis believe that? Did the did even earlier believe that? Well, they, people sin. They could they go into the tabernacle with their hearts pure? Maybe not. But they weren't trying to receive eternal forgiveness. They were just trying to keep from getting killed, and it worked always, every time. But a repentant heart's required if you want to be, receive forgiveness, right? This is this is totally consistent, totally consistent with rabbinic view of the offerings. Why would we think there's something different? Not that rabbis are always right, but why would we think there's something different? They're, they're, they're teaching the same thing. Repentance is required. Now, well, to be fair, there are some in Christianity that don't say that. Some people very close to us that don't say that. Whoever sins present tense hasn't seen him. That's pretty powerful. <laughs> as for you I'm going to have to keep from this from going to sleep here as for you, plural this is why plurals are important to understand the anointing which you received plural from him remains in you plural and you, plural <laughs> don't need anyone to teach you plural but as his anointing teaches you plural concerning all things that is true and is no lie and even as it taught you, plural, you remain in him, plural. Okay, think about it singular first. Okay? Our good friends of Charismatics who get so much right get this wrong. In this case, if they read this verse to prove a personal anointing. Because this is not teaching about a personal anointing. This is per- t- teaching about a corporate anointing. Which, by the way, you don't have if you're not corporate. You can't go in your closet on this one and claim an anointing. And that's the scary thing about reading the singular is because it's very easy when it says you don't need for anyone to teach you. I don't need anyone to teach you. Yeah. How many times, how many times, by the way, I, to, uh, personal disclosure, I have, a, I, have, I have affinity for charismatic things. So 
personal disclosure, you know, I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to defend people for beating up on them, okay? But on this one, no. Because I've heard too many times people say, listen, all I need is the Holy Spirit to teach me. No, you don't. That's not what this is teaching. This is teaching that corporately we've been given everything that we need to understand. The revelation's complete. It's like, how hard is it for you to understand? Do this and live. Do this and don't live. Listen, when you get that all right, it's time to die. So it'll take you a lifetime to get this right. So you don't need to worry about, well, okay, I don't need anybody to teach me. It's like, you know, I mean, if, if you get to that point, you've got it all figured out. Now, listen, it's talking about you don't need anybody to teach you. You've got everything that you need to understand. Now go do it. When you get it finished, come back. Can you imagine the master doing that? Listen, here's the task. Shoves it across the table to you. And he says, when you're done with this, I don't know how long it'll take you, but when you're done with this, please come back and see me. I'll have something else for you to do. I dare you to come back to the table. Because you're never going to fish what he just gave you. And that's what he's saying. That's exactly the concept he's saying. You have no one to teach you. You've been given everything that you need. If you will learn to do this, it's done. It also draws a boundary around the revelation. Absolutely. Instead of saying there's some other revelation that he tells me. Ah, you see, yeah. why knowing what we know about John and his reason to write this book, he's combating the idea that there's special knowledge for only those who are on the spiritual side. He wants us to know that even a child can obey. Right? You don't need a teacher. He's not saying, you, Greg, you don't need a teacher. By the way, you don't. But he's not saying, you, Greg, don't need a teacher. He's saying, y'all don't need a teacher. You've been told everything you need to know. There's, no, there's nothing left out. Otherwise, we'll be going looking for like, you know, we need to find a real, a real tzaddik that'll teach us. Deuteronomy 29 comes That's right. He's revealed to us that we may obey. It says it's the same. Always, always. And, and this book really does that. In conclusion, we're going to go dig deep. We are going to dig deep. Um, you know, it, it, you'll get out whatever you put into it. So, I mean, if you, if you don't do much study, then you probably won't get much out of it. But if you decide to dig, you will, you'll get a lot out of the book. Uh, we're going to get very practical. And that's one of the things that, when I say practical, just like I alluded to before, I'm not talking about um, how to talk nice to your neighbor. That's a given. You know that. That's not what the kind of practical we're talking about. What practical kind of talk about when it says, and the commandments are not too difficult. That's the kind of practical. When you read it and go, wow, how am I going to do that? You always remember, he really does want me to do it. And I can find a way. We're going to see the real test of discipleship is love. Not romantic love. Not churchy love. Although there's nothing wrong with churchy love. The real kind of love we're talking about is evidenced in obedience to the commandments. Evidenced in obedience to the mitzvot. That is the love that John speaks of in the gospel, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. One theme all the way through is love is very present. Which is a very mystic idea. Oh, look at uh, Speaking of mystic, questions, comments? One hour, exactly. <laughs>
temptation not to forsake the gathering together one another. It reminds me that corporate, it's important to get together, you know. Um, it's important to, and that, that letter is a letter of exhortation. Um, it says it very good. And it just, it just reminded, reminds me of this verse here, where the you is plural. And I just, you know, that, that's something that, um, you know, the Hebrews you see and making a point specifically. And the context of that is actually in the context of the, the festival. That's right. That's right. And also he talks about if we continue in sin, that idea of habitual as a lifestyle. Yep. And there's no sacrifice. So it's almost similar to first John in that. Oh, yeah. The remaining Much like that. lifestyle. Much like it. Um, when, when we... <laughs> oh, I love all the connections. It's great. Yeah. Um, you may be tempted... And I want to encourage you to do this. But you may be tempted to go skip to the back of the book and read read the formatting that includes present tense and also uh, plurals. Uh, and that's what I want you to do. I mean, read it. Read it exactly the way that... I mean, you have to read it with the formatting to understand what it's saying. But read it exactly the way that, that you have questions like, mm, that's, a, that's an interesting verse. I wonder what that really says in the Greek. You can't know exactly because I didn't give you everything. But at least you can know whether it's in present tense or whether it's in plural. Hold that. Hold that. Good. Yes, you bet. Oh, yes. Thank you. Is there any way you could give me a copy of that? I can. The frame, let's say, is the past. The translation is, you had on the line... Boldly were and uh, yeah, I tried to I tried to put that on the printout. It didn't go through on the printout, so I'll I'll have to add that. Email? I can. What I'm gonna what I have is I have a PDF. It, the, the study's not complete. <laughs> <laughs> Joseph Joseph is, has promised me a year to spread this out. So. <laughs> So uh, as no, I was teasing, but uh, but as as a, I will be doing my best to get it finished. But right now, I have I have basically I have content for three lessons in there, and and all of the all of the text formatted and whatever else. And I just need to fill in the other five lessons. So the the PDF will have um, all those lessons, and it'll have the appendix with the with the Hebrew names version. But the lessons intervening are all blank. So we'll add them. At, we'll add them as time goes on. We'll put it on the site. And then as he finishes stuff, we'll just update what's out there so that you can always get the Thanks, Joseph. I appreciate it.